You're listening to Inside Time, journalism, analysis, insight, delivered to you daily. What to know about the history of the debt ceiling by Nick Popley and Olivia B. Waxman. The Biden administration remains locked in a standoff with congressional Republicans over raising the federal debt ceiling just two weeks before the nation is set to default on its obligations for the first time. The U.S. government hit its congressionally imposed $31.4 trillion borrowing limit in January, and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has warned that the country could run out of cash as early as June 1st if... Democratic President Joe Biden and Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are unable to reach a deal to raise the debt ceiling. But while a default would be unprecedented, according to most experts, this isn't the first time Washington has been down this road. Since the 1950s, both political parties have engaged in legislative battles over the debt ceiling, each using it to paint the other as financially irresponsible, only to reach an agreement before markets begin to panic. Here's what to know about the history of the debt ceiling and how it provides context for the current political battle. What is the debt ceiling and why was it created? The debt limit refers to a ceiling imposed by Congress in 1917 that sets the maximum amount of outstanding debt the U.S. can incur. The first debt limit was established to give the Treasury autonomy over borrowing by allowing it to issue debt up to the ceiling without congressional approval, making it easier to finance mobilization efforts in World War I. Before that, Congress generally had to authorize the Treasury to borrow in smaller increments. But the U.S. began accumulating more debt as it got involved in more wars abroad. After entering World War II, the U.S. raised the debt limit every year to accommodate increased borrowing. According to the Bipartisan Policy Center, by the end of the war in June 1946, the debt limit is lowered to $275 billion as war costs dissipate and the federal government begins to run three years of surpluses. The federal debt limit remains unchanged at this level for eight consecutive years, the longest such period since its inception. In the last two decades, the U.S. has added $25 trillion in debt, spending nearly $1 trillion more than it receives in taxes and other revenue every year since 2001, in large part due to financing wars, tax cuts, emergency responses, and expanded federal spending. To make up the difference, the government has to borrow money to continue to finance payments that Congress has already authorized. Now that the U.S. has hit its limit, unless Congress raises or suspends the debt limit, the federal government will lack the cash to pay all its obligations. How many times has the debt limit been raised? Since 1960, Congress has raised, extended, or revised the debt limit 78 separate times, of which 49 were under Republican presidents and 29 were under Democratic presidents, according to the Department of Treasury. In each of those instances, Congress took action on the debt limit before the nation defaulted. But in recent years, raising the cap has become an increasingly political issue, particularly when power in Washington is divided. Since the debt ceiling is one of the few must-pass bills, both parties have tried to use the vote as an opportunity to take a political stand and exact concessions, blaming the other side for its profligacy. When was the last time the U.S. was debt-free? 
January 1835 was the first and only time all of the government's interest-bearing debt was paid off, according to the Treasury Department. President Andrew Jackson, who was suspicious of banks and did not trust the paper money they issued, liquidated the second bank of the United States, returning the government's original investment plus a profit. As a result, the government had a huge surplus of money at $17.9 million, far greater than the actual government expenditures for the year. Congress divided the surpluses up among the states, which were bogged down with debt. The last time the federal government ran a surplus was in 2001. Has the U.S. ever defaulted before? It depends on who you ask. Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, has said that the U.S. has always paid its bills on time and that if Congress does not raise the debt ceiling, America would default for the first time in history. The White House has also claimed that the U.S. faces a first-ever default if Congress is unable to raise the debt limit. But Alex Pollack, a former Treasury Department official, argued in a 2021 op-ed in The Hill that there are four precedents for U.S. defaults, one during the Civil War in 1862 when the U.S. printed paper money after the Union's reserves of gold and silver coin were depleted, two during the Great Depression in 1933 when the government refused to repay bondholders with gold as agreed to when the securities were sold, Three, in 1968, when the U.S. did not honor silver certificates with an exchange of silver dollars. And four, in 1971, when the government abandoned the Bretton Woods Agreement, which included a commitment to redeem dollars held by foreign governments for gold. However, according to PolitiFact, these precedents do not mirror the type of default that would happen today. A debt limit breach could lead to a decline in real GDP nearly 2 million lost jobs, and an increase in the unemployment rate, per a recent report from Moody's Analytics. What's the history of work requirements? Stricter work requirements for federal aid programs have emerged as a key issue that appears to be holding up negotiations over raising the nation's debt ceiling. Biden has signaled openness to compromise, even as other Democrats have balked. Legislation passed by House Republicans in April would impose new or expanded work requirements for beneficiaries of three federal programs, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, formerly known as Food Stamps, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, TANF, which offers aid to low-income families with children, and Medicaid Assistance for Adults Without Dependents. Work requirements for federal aid programs are not a new idea. Biden told reporters last weekend that he voted for tougher aid programs when he was a senator from Delaware. That's in the law now, he said. But for Medicaid, it's a different story. In 1996, Biden was one of 78 senators who voted for a welfare reform package that then-President Bill Clinton signed into law. The law eliminated the nation's main welfare program and replaced it with TANF, which requires recipients to participate in work activities as a condition of receiving cash benefits. In remarks about the debt ceiling on Wednesday, Biden said it's possible there could be a few work requirement provisions in the deal, but not anything of any consequence. I'm not going to accept any work requirements that go much beyond what is already. I voted years ago for the work requirements that exist, he said. Do other countries have a debt ceiling? There are only two countries that maintain a debt ceiling, the U.S. and Denmark. But the debt ceiling in Denmark does not regularly threaten economic disruption since it is set much higher than the country's spending. In 2021, Denmark's debt was about 14% of its ceiling. 
Only once has Denmark approached its limit in 2010 after the 2008 financial crisis and the nation's parliament quickly decided to raise it. Other countries have temporarily had a debt ceiling. Australia introduced one in 2007 amid a large budget deficit, though it was repealed six years later. What is the role of the 14th Amendment? Some Senate Democrats are urging Biden to prepare to invoke the 14th Amendment to lift the debt ceiling on his own, without an act of Congress. The controversial legal theory, which previous administrations had ruled out, builds on Section 4 of the 14th Amendment to argue that it would be unconstitutional for the U.S. to fail to make payments even if the debt limit isn't raised, effectively challenging the debt limit on legal grounds. The 14th Amendment states that the validity of the public debt authorized by law shall not be questioned. Some legal scholars argue that this clause gives the Treasury Department the ability to keep borrowing money past the current $31.4 trillion debt limit that requires congressional approval to raise or lift. It's a constitutionally tenable argument and a strong argument to solve the current debt ceiling crisis, says Rebecca Zitlow, a professor at the University of Toledo College of Law, whose research focuses on the 14th Amendment. Biden said after his first meeting with top congressional leaders that he was considering using the 14th Amendment, but also acknowledged drawbacks to that approach. The problem is it would have to be litigated, and without an extension, it would end up in the same place. The U.S. Surgeon General Fears Social Media is Harming the Well-Being of Our Children by Alice Park On May 23rd, U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy issued an advisory warning about the impact that social media is having on the mental health of young people. I issued this advisory because this is an urgent crisis, Murthy tells Time. In the effort to maximize the benefit and minimize the harms of social media on children, we have not made enough progress. As a consequence, I worry about the mental health and well-being of our children. In a conversation with Time, Murthy discusses how parents, policymakers, researchers, and technology companies can and should come together to make social media platforms safer for children. This interview has been condensed and edited for clarity. Why do you think social media's impact on young people is so concerning? Dr. Murthy since becoming Surgeon General, I have focused primarily on mental health and well-being, which I see as the defining public health crisis of our time. And youth are a point of concern. As I traveled around the country and talked to families about mental health concerns, the number one question I get from parents is about social media. Is social media safe for my kids? And many kids raise the same concerns. At roundtables I've had with middle school students, high school students, and college students, they often proactively bring up social media. The three things they have told me most consistently are, one, that social media often made them feel worse about themselves, two, that it made them feel worse about their friendships, and three, that they couldn't get off of it. As one student told me, I feel great during the day, then take out my phone and get on social media and see all of these people doing things without me or accomplishing incredible things, having incredible bodies and living incredible lives, and suddenly I feel worse about myself. It's a common theme. The reason I issued the advisory is to answer the question that so many parents have been posing to me about social media. What does your report conclude about social media and youth mental health? 
After putting together the available data, which involved going through publicly available research and looking at published data as well as consulting independent experts, our conclusions are first that there isn't enough data to say that social media platforms are safe for kids, and second, that there is growing evidence that social media use is associated with harms. Do policymakers and technology companies have a responsibility to ensure that their platforms are safe for children? I 100% see this as a responsibility for policymakers and technology companies. Any company that produces a product consumed by kids has a fundamental responsibility to ensure it is safe for children, that it helps and not harms them. We don't ask parents to inspect the brakes on cars that children will ride in or the ingredients and medications that children use or ask them to conduct chemical analyses of the paint used in toys made for children to make sure that they are safe. We set standards and enforce them, that's usually done by government, to make sure that manufacturers meet them. That's what is missing here. We can't have technology companies set their own standards. We don't do that in any other sectors where kids' well-being is at stake. But that's largely what has been happening over the past 20 years. What are some specific standards that policymakers can set for social media use among children? We need to strengthen protections for kids through safety standards, especially by protecting kids from exposure to harmful content. Too many kids are exposed to sexual and violent content, as well as harassment and abuse online. That should not be happening. We can take a page out of safety standards applied to other products for children and should include standards around age. While 13 is the commonly used age many platforms use to allow users to join, we should keep in mind two things. First, it's terribly enforced because 40% of 8 to 12-year-olds are on social media. Second, 13 years old did not come from a health assessment that looked at what appropriate age kids should be on social media. It came from COPPA, Children's Online Privacy Protection Rule, a law that restricted the age under which data could not be collected and shared. We need to understand what appropriate age a child should start using these platforms. Are there data to inform at what age children can safely start using social media? That's another thing that standards set by policymakers can do. Ensure that technology companies share data that's relevant from their platforms. I hear from researchers all the time who are not able to get full access to the data they need to fully understand the impact platforms are having on children. As a parent myself, I don't want to feel that there is information that is hidden from me about the impact products my kids are using may have on their mental health and well-being. Should standards also include restrictions on certain types of content for younger users? Effective standards would protect kids from harmful content, and these standards not only need to be set, but need to be enforced. It's important for parents and kids to be at the table to help inform how these standards are shaped. These platforms have been designed to maximize how much time kids are spending on them. One thing new standards can do is to minimize the features that lead to excessive use, especially among younger children. I acknowledge that companies are trying to take steps to make platforms safer, but it's really not sufficient. Time matters. Children only have one childhood, and every day, every month, every year matters in the life and development of a child. For Marianne Williamson, the Bernie Sanders lane looks wide open by Minnie Racker. 
Four years ago, before Gabriela Orozco was old enough to vote, she knew Bernie Sanders was her candidate to take on Donald Trump. She liked how the Vermont senator wanted to remake the federal government to help those most in need. Now the 20-year-old college student finds herself once again looking for an alternative to Joe Biden. But Sanders is old now, she tells me, when we talk in Washington, D.C.'s National Press Club, where long-shot presidential candidate Marianne Williamson has just delivered a speech. What did she think of Williamson when the spiritual author ran ahead of 2020? Orozco pauses, both of us aware of Williamson greeting fans a few feet behind her. There was a reputation of her as a bit of a crazy lady, she says softly. Orozco's willingness to give a crazy lady a second look is a sign of how much has changed since 2020, when many Americans knew of Williamson as the kooky crystal woman preaching a politics of love. Now, the options for those dissatisfied with the Democratic establishment are scant, and Williamson is more clearly evangelizing from the gospel of Bernie Sanders. During the last campaign, it was this urgent sense that if only we could defeat the former president, then maybe life will go back to normal, Williamson tells me later that evening. Now, people realize the problem was bigger than just one man. Indeed, the crowd of about four dozen people who came to hear Williamson propose an economic bill of rights was littered with one-time Sanders supporters, some of whom punctuated her speech with snaps and loud hums of approval. When Williamson mentioned her support for Medicare for All and her plans to cancel all college loan debt, the applause was so piercing, it sounded like balloons popping. Williamson's chances of winning the nomination aren't much better than four years ago. She is polling in the single digits below another long-shot candidate, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Audience members I spoke to were resigned to the party nominating Biden again, and only one committed firmly to voting for Williamson in the primary. But they all hope she can do in 2024 something akin to what Sanders did eight years ago, nudging the party to the left. I was a big Bernie supporter in 2016 and 2020, says Blake, a 26-year-old who works for a government contractor and didn't want his last name published. One of the things that I really like about Marianne is, regardless of what people say about her electability, she's pushing the Overton window to the left. And I think that enables Biden and the more establishment Dems to maybe push further left on issues. Of course, Williamson ran as a progressive in 2019, too. Despite entering the race with no prior experience in elected office, her status as a celebrity author whose profile had been elevated by the likes of Oprah Winfrey enabled her to clear the thresholds to qualify for the primary debate stage. But facing nearly two dozen rivals, including a left-wing champion in Sanders, she often got lost in the crowd. It didn't help that she was quickly branded the Orb Queen for her talk of the dark psychic force operating in America and for her spiritual fans who penned many tweets studded with crystal ball emojis. Now her brand has evolved. It's all about no-nonsense Sanders-esque policy. I won't turn that down, she says when I ask her about the comparison to the Vermont Independent. I don't think that a candidacy like mine would exist had there not been a Bernie Sanders. I don't think there would have been a Bernie Sanders had there not been an Occupy movement. Everything in life, whether it has to do with our individual journeys or their journey of a nation, one thing leads to another. 
Fighting political corruption is an animating theme of the evening. When an audience member asks what Americans can do about it, she admits it's unlikely gerrymandering will end or Citizens United, the Supreme Court decision which unleashed unlimited corporate spending in elections, will be overturned anytime soon. But Justice Sanders is now delighting in using his leadership position in the Senate to hold corporate executives to account. Williamson envisions taking on the powerful people the rest of D.C. is palling around with. Elect someone, get her in there, who sees that game for what it is, who has nothing to gain by pleasing the insurance companies or pleasing the pharmaceutical companies or pleasing big ag or pleasing big chemical companies or pleasing big food companies or pleasing gun manufacturers or pleasing big oil or pleasing defense contractors, Williamson urges. It will please me to make them squirm. After the speech, I talk with Marcus O'Brien, a 30-year-old real estate agent and one-time president of his high school's Young Republicans Club. By 2020, O'Brien had gone through a political transformation and backed Sanders in the primary, which he says explains why he finds Williamson compelling for 2024. I had a look at her policies, obviously, and her policies almost directly line up with Bernie Sanders-type policies, he says. Besides Medicare for All and canceling all student loan debt, Williamson, like Sanders, supports passing the PRO Act to boost union protections and putting checks on banking executives. Sanders has endorsed Biden for re-election, but told Insider in March, I know Marianne, I'm sure she's going to run a strong campaign and raise very important issues. Williamson's fans are among the many Democrats who aren't satisfied with Biden's leadership or the fact he's running again. She seems to be one of the few of all the candidates that has an interest in representing the working class, especially among Democrats, says Troy Bent, a 47-year-old math and special education teacher who found himself drawn to Sanders and Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren during the last cycle. As usual, we're faced with vote for the lesser of two evils, says Bent, who adds, this year, I'm not going for it. With the Democratic Party in lockstep with Biden, I ask Williamson what she's doing differently this time around. Some of the things I'm doing differently have to do with making the sausage, she responds. Nothing you talk to Time magazine about. She means campaign logistics. Though she didn't tell me any details, Politico reported that Williamson recently parted with two top campaign staffers, including her campaign manager. An anonymous staffer told Politico that their departures were mutually agreed upon after the campaign decided to go in a more progressive direction. Before the end of our interview, I have to know what Williamson hopes to achieve out of this campaign short of winning. She's clearly strategic. We both know earning the nomination will be tough. Maybe there's something else? At the end of this, whether it takes us to the White House or not, we will know that we presented the American people with the option of moving in the direction of that new beginning, she says. I personally believe that if I'm successful at reaching enough people with this vision— and have a fair shot at introducing myself to them, then I will win the nomination and I will win the presidency. So it's the party and the media that are standing in the way? She says her one-word answer like a full sentence. Duh. Thanks for listening to Time, bringing newsworthy stories to you since 1923. Check out time.com for more award-winning journalism.